going to be looking in Luke chapter 13 tonight. Luke chapter 13. Uh, rather lengthy title. I didn't uh, know exactly what to say, so I just told you what we're going to talk about tonight. Human tragedy, God's judgment and repentance. This is not a passage of scripture uh, that you've probably heard a lot of messages about. And yet it is a passage of scripture. It's a scene of Jesus' life and ministry. In Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, the Bible says there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay. But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay. But except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. You know, one of the perennial issues that God's people face and wrestle with is the bad things that happen. Specifically, uh, when bad things happen to us as God's people, uh, sometimes it's worse, actually. In fact, most of the time, it's worse when it happens to our family. Uh, when we live for God, we serve God, we live for Jesus, but something bad happens. Uh, we have a child who's born with an illness, uh, someone uh, who is suffering, someone who is hurt. With, uh, for, there seems to be no reason for it, no explanation for it. And it causes us to struggle. It may be accidents that kill or permanently damage. It could be illnesses that strike suddenly. We've seen a lot of that in the last year. Uh, it was seemingly malicious intent. Yeah, it's just singling out sometimes. Uh, really good godly people. Evil violence that rises up and strikes furiously. We struggle with these things and all of these things. Our text tonight records a time when people brought just that kind of an issue to Jesus. We're not absolutely sure. Uh, but historians are pretty sure that this referred to an event uh, regarding the followers of the one called Judas of Galilee, who was mentioned in, in uh, another biblical passage. Uh, uh, he was uh, a person widely touted by some as a messianic figure. There were many of them. And uh, he attracted a following. Uh, his followers were determined to do away with paying taxes to the Roman Empire. They were leading a, a, a tax revolt, kind of like a, a tea party kind of event. And uh, uh, they were going to overthrow this uh, very, very oppressive system of Roman taxation. Well, Passover happened. And a group of his followers uh, who were being watched by the Romans, of course... Uh, made their way into Jerusalem as expected. Made their way into the temple. It was Passover. And Pilate sent the soldiers in and wiped them out, slaughtered them in the temple on the Passover. So that as the text tells us, their blood was mingled with the blood of the Passover lambs. 
We're not 100% sure that that was the event that's being talked about here, but it's pretty likely. Uh, people, of course, were outraged. We're not sure if they were outraged over the, the tragedy of the event that people would die under such awful circumstances or if they were outraged because it happened in Jerusalem on the holiest day in the temple with the soldiers blaspheming and desecrating that place so that all of the massive celebrations around Passover would have been forced to stall out. We don't, we don't. Uh, maybe they were outraged by the religious connotations of that, the political connotations of that. Uh, maybe they were just outraged at the simple morality of it. How ruthless the Romans could be. Notoriously ruthless, by the way. How ruthless Pilate could be. Notoriously so, by the way. Outrage. We hear a lot about outrage today. All kinds of things. Sometimes our ability to fathom, comprehend the tragedies that we see play out uh, all around us. It, it, it's amazing. I've, I've watched this and I've, I've thought about it, analyzed it in my own life. Uh, you'll remember the tsunami that happened a few years ago that, that struck and, and just wiped out thousands and thousands of people in Sri Lanka and other places. Just horrible, uh, horrible, unspeakable tragedy watching those waves crashing out of the Indian Ocean and just wiping people out. Uh, after a while, all those images just go, I mean, you just can't seem to process it. We almost get numb to it. It's beyond our ability to comprehend death on that kind of scale. I can only imagine what it was like to live in the days of World War I when they had not only the terrible war that was going on, they called the Great War, the war to end all wars, they said. Combine that with a global pandemic that was going on at the same time when they so-called swine flu or Spanish flu as it was known back then. H1N1 made its first appearance as far as we know in recorded history. Oh, it wiped out millions of people across the planet. Imagine those two things happening at once. Fighting a world war. <laughs> dealing with a pandemic and facing an illness, a mysterious illness. That nobody had any clue about how to fight. It's been rather intriguing to watch that and Think about all the things, the similarities that we've faced in the last year. Um, they had people back then tying rags around their faces, uh, telling them to open their houses and open their windows and get fresh air in. It uh, kind of declined in the summertime, sound familiar, came back with a vengeance in the fall. We've, we've seen all those things. It's hard for us to imagine what it would be like. We think about current world population and try to uh, put those numbers from uh, the World War I era on our era today and, and the numbers of deaths would be unimaginable. We struggled when uh, the towers fell and we saw over 3,000 people die. Often compared, you've heard it over and over again. Those of you who lived through it, it's amazing. Some of you young people weren't alive when it happened. Um, those of us who lived through it, though, remember how it was often compared 
to the Battle of Antietam, what was called the bloodiest day in American history. 3,000 people dying on that one day. It just... How do you deal with that? Well, we do. We process it. But there's part of us that if it's not us, if it doesn't come to us personally, we, we see that. But it's hard for us maybe to deal with that. And sometimes we just turn away and move on. We see the violence perpetrated against people. Um, Sandy Hook shooting from a few years ago. Uh, the Las Vegas uh, massacre that happened a few years ago. It's awful. It's, it's horrible for us to fathom those kinds of things. Still, we do. We, we take it in. We see it. We observe it. We think about it. We process it. We move on. We know that it happened. But it didn't happen to us. But then there's the outrage that happens and, and so much of that today. And some of the outrage, I'll be honest with you, seems to me to be quite contrived. And I want to give you an example. And if this offends you, I apologize. And I'll apologize to you personally if you'll give me a chance. Uh, but I, I observed something a few years ago uh, when it, we had a different president than we have now. And we had another border crisis going on. And I remember watching the outrage, I mean the pure outrage, just bombarding, filling up our news screens as, as all kinds of people were lamenting the fact that children were being incarcerated at the border. Outrage, you remember? You remember? But I didn't see anybody volunteering to take those kids in and feed them and shelter them and give them a home. Where was the massive numbers of people who went running down there saying, I'll take these kids? Did that happen? You see, sometimes the outrage seems contrived and not really sincere. But at other times, the outrage is very real. We see things that we just... We can't handle. We struggle with it. And that's the kind of thing they were bringing to Jesus in our text. They didn't ask the question specifically. But I think we can hear it in their cry. Why did God let this happen? How could such a thing happen? How could God let a ruthless ruler like Pontius Pilate descend on these good people coming to Jerusalem to worship God on the Passover and just kill them? How could, how could such a thing happen? You can hear the outrage. You can hear the cry. You can hear them upset. After all these years, it's still ringing in their mind. And the chances are tonight, though, if you, and maybe you won't have to think very long. It's probably something just right there. Because the wound is still there. It might have been years ago. But the pain is still real. And that time when something struck you, your family, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your kids, your son. It seems so far out of anything regarding to, even relating to equity. It just didn't seem right 
that this could happen? How, how could this happen? How could it happen to me? Well, Jesus didn't dodge the issue and he didn't cover it up with some meaningless platitude like saying, well, it's all good. Well, God's good all the time. He didn't quote Romans 8.28 after all. It hadn't been written yet, but he could have quoted it because, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired it. Well, all things work together for good. He he didn't say, well, God has done this for his glory. That's uh, something I'm hearing a lot from one side of the uh, theological persuasion these times, well, you know, well, whatever happens, God is, is making it happen and it's going to work out for His glory. Hmm. Jesus didn't do all that. He didn't say anything like that. But He did use their question to make some very simple but yet profound points. Just because they're simple doesn't mean they're not profound. I mean, they're simply stated. Very direct, very simple, not a lot of complicated explanation. Jesus said, this is what you can learn from this kind of experience. The first thing then that Jesus does is he emphasizes that life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. And he does that when he asks them a question. Do you think that those Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered these things. Uh, you see, Jesus was bringing up their common theological position. If, if something bad happens to you, then you must have done something bad. That's what Job's three friends were arguing with him all that time about. Come on, Job, you might as well fess up. We know you've got something going on or God wouldn't be treating you this way. It was a question of the disciples. Who, who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, if something bad has happened to you, you, there's a real simple reason. You must have been bad. But Jesus addressed that with the man who was born blind. He was, and he addresses that in this passage here. He says, were these people sinners? Do you think uh, that God picked out the worst people in Galilee? Were these people so much worse than anybody else? And he said, no. No. And that leaves us with a simple response. These kind of things happen. If it did not happen to them because they were sinners, if it wasn't happening to them as some kind of an attribute of the judgment of God, of the justice of God, then these are the kind of things that happen in a sin-cursed world. He didn't even give them that explanation. I think he expected them and us to know it. This world operates under the curse of sin. And because of that, death happens. That means that life is uncertain. We could put it this way. Towers fall. <laughs> Towers fall. Think about that the next time you go walking in downtown Little Rock. Towers fall. Uh, porches collapse, bridges fall. Not meaning to add to anybody's phobia out there that's scared about bridges. I, was, I, I hate that, but uh, yeah, bridges fall, things collapse, wars happen, people die. You see, life is uncertain. 
And because we live in a sin-cursed world, because we live in a world after the fall, then these things happen, and they happen, listen to me tonight, they happen to the just and to the unjust. They happen, if you want to look at it this way, to the saved and to the unsaved. Saved people get cancer. Lost people get cancer. Lost people have heart attacks. Saved people do too. Uh, lost people have children who are, who are born with uh, 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 conditions that cannot be cured. Saved people have the same thing that happened. We live in a fallen world and life then is uncertain. We do not know what a day may bring forth. Jesus himself taught us that. I can't even begin to tell you how many times in the last year that I've prayed over grieving families. Asking God to watch over them. Because I knew that every time they gathered together to mourn their dead, there was a possibility that a whole bunch of them were going to get sick. And that some would die. And I prayed everything, every time I've gone to a funeral with every single family that we've had that suffered through death over this last year. God, please don't add sorrow to their sorrow. And the fact is, I should have been praying that a long time over every grieving family because there's always that possibility. When they gather together for one funeral that they might have to gather together again, in a matter of days, it happens. Death happens. Life is uncertain. And so we never know what a day is going to bring forth. And that seems to be one of the things that Jesus brings to these people's mind. Towers fall. Wars happen. He also then takes this opportunity to emphasize the necessity of repentance. David, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. <laughs> now, I've quoted that passage of Scripture hundreds of times, and actually it's said twice in this passage. It's said again in verse 5. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. But you know, a lot of times we quote that passage just completely ignoring the actual context of which it was said. Specifically, Jesus was saying to his audience that they needed to turn from their sin. And their sin was they were rejecting him. They were rejecting the Messiah. Generations of Jewish people had grown up living and, 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 and going through all of life, anticipating the arrival of their Messiah. And now he's here. And they were rejecting him and refusing him. And so he speaks to them in a very specific way. You need to repent. You need to repent. Jesus wasn't the only one that preached that message. Uh, John the Baptist certainly came preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's time to get right with God. Turn to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Simon Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached, what did he preach? He preached repentance. Repent, he said, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did Paul preach? Acts 17, 30. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All these centuries later, what are we preaching tonight? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
It is the necessity of repentance. You see, these people were all dealing with these outrages and all these things that were going on around them, looking for answers, demanding answers for the situations that were going on in their life. They were rejecting Jesus because he wasn't acting like a Messiah should act and wasn't doing what they thought that he should be doing. Sound familiar? <laughs> well, if I was God, well, why doesn't God do this? Why didn't he do that? Jesus went straight through all of that. You've got a bigger problem. And that was the problem that he had come to fix. And that was the one that they did not want him to deal with. What an invitation God gave through Isaiah the prophet when he said, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. What an invitation. God says, God says to you and me, you want to think about something? Okay. You want an explanation of something? Let's talk. You want to talk? I'm here. Come now, God says, and let's talk. Let's reason together. What's God want to talk about? Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, yours, yours, you folks at home, though your sin be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they shall be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Last thing in the world we want to talk to God about is our sin. <laughs> we want a lot of answers. God knows that we've got a problem. We have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Think about it. What good would it do if God answered everybody's questions, but they still died and went to hell? If he answered their questions, they wouldn't like the answer. I promise you that. So he said, let's get past that. Let's talk about what's really important. Let's talk about what's really needed. Let's talk about this essential matter. And for you, that matter is repentance. Because except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So he brings to them the reality and the uncertainty of life. He brings to them the necessity of repentance. And then the equality of death. You shall all likewise perish. Likewise, of course, as the operative word, you shall all die in a similar fashion. Now there's a lot of, I know this is kind of morbid, but uh, I'm trying to deal with the truth of the text. There's a lot of ways to die. But in the end, all death is the same. You stop breathing, the heart stops breathing, beating, uh, your bodily organs shut down, rigor mortis sets in rather quickly, you die. It is appointed unto man wants to die. Now, there's a lot of different ways that can happen. It can happen due to what we call natural causes. It can happen because of accidents. It can happen because of wars. It can happen because of the pandemic. But at the end, death is the same. And death is final. It is final in this sense. As death finds you, listen tonight, 
eternity claims you. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment, as death finds you, eternity claims you. Many religions have come up with some kind of a second chance kind of thing. Some of them claiming, claiming to be Christian religions. Some of them came upon an ingenious plan where you could actually pay money and uh, you could get your loved ones out of hell, of purgatory. <laughs> Don't you know that raised a lot of money over the centuries? Uh, some have come up with the idea, well, you know, if you've got relatives back there, you can find your relatives, whoever they are, and you can go and be baptized for them. And they'll be brought up out of hell and brought into heaven, baptized for the dead. Uh, that's been a popular idea among a so-called Christian religion. Many others, even beyond Christianity, many others have, have built up the idea that there is some second chance after death. I want you to know tonight, those things do not come from the Word of God. They're not found in the Scripture. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this is judgment. As death finds you, eternity claims you. The time to be saved is now. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is the accepted time. Now is the time for salvation. Death uh, comes to all. And that is a very sobering reality. Now, in this passage, there is, I think, a particular application that we need to mention because uh, there was coming a, a time when the Romans were not going to do this just to a handful of people. Uh, they were going to wipe out everybody. In fact, uh, the historian Josephus estimated that 300,000 Jews were slaughtered by the Romans during the Feast of Passover around 70 AD. Now, we don't know. His numbers are, are widely disputed today. I'll just tell you that. But So how many died when the Romans finally conquered Jerusalem and put down that final Jewish uh, insurrection and employed that final solution uh, against Israel so long ago, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands. It was said that so many Jews were crucified that they run out of trees. Hmm, think about that one. Well... It's very likely, although we don't often think about it, that the persecution of Saul of Tarsus and the persecution that arose even after him, after Saul got saved, the persecution that scattered the people away from Judea and, and scattered the Christians out of Jerusalem, think about how many of them got their lives saved. <laughs> because if they'd have stayed in Jerusalem and in Judea, they would have been slaughtered by the Romans. Don't often think about that persecution as an act of God's grace. Those people were scattered and they were saved. So there was a, a specific historical application of what Jesus was saying when he warned them, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. If you repent, if you trust me, uh, maybe you'll avoid some of this. But if you don't, then he knew what was coming. But for all of us, tonight we can say that the only sure victory over death 
is through the one who has conquered death and the grave. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe on him and he promises that he will give us eternal life. Uh, if you'll read on in the chapter, I won't take the time to take you there tonight, but if you'll read on in the chapter, you'll see that Jesus ends up lamenting and weeping over Jerusalem. That famous passage when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you together as a hen gathered their chicks, but you were not willing. He would end up and say, Your land is left unto you desolate. You see, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. And while they were all upset over the events that had happened, and they were certainly something to be upset about, it was nothing compared to what was going to happen. And so out of that situation, he brings the importance in of them understanding that life is uncertain, that repentance is, is essential, and that there's an equality in death. Death comes upon all. And as death finds you, eternity claims you. Then he tells a sobering story. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years, sound familiar? Three years. These three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? He answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it, that's fertilize it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. It's hard to figure out what Jesus is saying in that passage, is he? And they've already been given three years. They've got one last time. You see, Israel was the vineyard. Jesus was coming to him, uh, coming to it, looking for fruit. And he had come there to, to make it bear fruit. But they were unfruitful. And the lack of spiritual fruit there and the, uh, their lack of receiving him as the Messiah was absolute proof uh, that they were lost. Religious, but lost. Serving God, but lost. Worshiping, but lost. Following the law, but lost. How do we know they were lost? Because they rejected Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever been saved or ever will be saved while rejecting Jesus Christ. There is none other name given unto men whereby we must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There's no other plan. That's it. John put it so simply in John chapter 1. He came into his own, but his own received him not. But... As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. Paul would use the figure of an olive tree in Romans chapter 11 to describe how that Israel, the natural branches, were cut off. And he describes a common practice where a wild olive tree normally would be cut off and they would graft in then a, a tame olive tree so that that tame olive tree could uh, get, a, get a head start as it were because all that root structure was already in place and, and then it could just immediately begin to, to grow and, and very rapidly then be producing fruit by comparison to just planting a seedling in the ground. 
But in this case, Paul said in Romans chapter 11 that they went contrary to nature. And they cut off a tame, that is a bearing olive tree. And they brought in a wild olive branch. That was the Gentiles, by the way. And why was the, the natural olive tree, the domesticated tree, why was it cut off? Well, he tells us, Romans chapter 11, because they didn't believe. Why was this happening? Why was Jesus talking about them? Because Israel had rejected their Messiah. And as a result of that, he cut them off. And a new people were grafted in, the Gentiles of all nations. Uh, he makes some great uh, applications in Romans chapter 11. We don't have time to do all that, but we do remember the warning that he gave. He said, if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. You see, it was the nation of Israel that was cut off. And they were cut off because of unbelief. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find that God holds nations accountable for the way that they respond to him and to his word. And what happened to the nation of Israel long ago because of unbelief has happened to many nations since. In the early 1900s, the leader in world missions was a country known as Great Britain, England. Leader in sending missionaries around the world. Uh, less than 10%. Uh, in Great Britain today is active uh, Christian people considers themselves to be active believers in their faith. Less than 10%. It has happened to many countries since and they've been cut off because of unbelief. If God did not spare Israel, he may not spare the United States of America either. It's hard for us to imagine but it could happen here. It may be happening in many ways right before our very eyes. And it can happen a lot quicker than you think. But while that's true, we also draw out of this the importance and of bearing fruit. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 5, I know I talked about this morning. Uh, that's alright, it's here in the text, so I'm going to preach about it tonight too. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. There the work of the Spirit is again. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. F.B. Meyer, the great Bible commentary said, commentator said, It is not the iniquity of the lost as much as the indifference of the church that pierces the heart of God. What a great statement. It's not the iniquity of the lost, but the indifference of the church. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You see, the obvious implication of this passage as Jesus speaks to them, uh, this sobering story, was that they were being cut off because they did not bear fruit. And the cause of their lack of fruit bearing was because they did not believe their lack of faith. They did not receive the Messiah. And because they were lost, religious but lost, they couldn't bear fruit to God. It's a horrible situation. But it reminds us of how important their repentance is. And then after that, how important it is that we bear fruit. 
I want to close out tonight with the words of the psalmist in Psalm 126, verse 5 through 6. And this is a wonderful passage if you don't have it. Psalm 126, verse 5. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless, don't you love that word, doubtless, doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. As we go, we need to sow. What do we sow? We sow the seeds of the gospel. We sow the seeds of biblical truth. We're headed full bore into Easter Sunday. Maybe a little different this year, but I promise you, we're going to have a whole lot more people in this house this Easter Sunday than we did last Easter Sunday. I promise you that. And I'm going to be excited about it. I don't want anybody to hear. I don't want anybody to say, well, I remember when we had 800. I don't want to hear it. We might have 800. Don't know what we'd do with them. <laughs> we'll, uh, I don't know, put up a speaker and have them sit out here in our outside zone. Uh, some of you remember where our outside zone is. We've done it before. We can do it again. I don't know. We'll, we'll, what a problem to have and wouldn't it be a great one? I, I don't know. But it's Easter season. There's, it's, it's never easier than Easter for you to ask your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers, hey, you got somewhere to go to church on Easter Sunday? Love to have you come to Faith Baptist in Kevin. We'll have a card here available for you next week. Pick up one of those cards. You can use it then and, and use it as a witnessing tool. Sow the seed. You may not always have time to sit down and give somebody a clear presentation of the gospel, but if you give them a piece of paper that's got the gospel on it, you've given them a chance. You say, oh, they'll probably throw it down. Yes, some will, but some won't. And you never know when they might tuck it away in their pocket and they get home cleaning out their pockets and there it is. Hmm. What I know tonight is that the gospel seed is powerful. Do you believe that? The gospel seed is powerful. The Holy Spirit is real and He's work. He's at work. If we keep the seed in our pocket, it's not going to do us a lot of good carrying it around. As we go, so. So what? Sow the gospel seed. Sow the truth of the scripture. Sow people in their need for the church. As we sow then, we'll grow. And as we grow, we'll also glow. We'll, we'll shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll tell you what, nothing makes us feel any better than when we have talked to somebody and invited them to come to church or to come to church on Sunday morning and there they sit. Isn't that amazing? Makes us feel bad if we call them and they, hey, you'll come to church. And then they come and say, where were you? <laughs> yeah. I know some of you have had that happen to you because they come to me saying, where is so-and-so? Well, I don't see them. <laughs> I'm sorry, they must not be here today. <clears throat> we hate it. when that, Don't you hate it when that happens? Hey, I'd rather see that happen than us not invite anybody. Uh, invite them. Give them an opportunity. Sow the seed. God says he'll bless it. There's an old song we used to sing a lot. But you probably hadn't heard it in a long time. It says, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master, 
Though the loss sustained, our spirits often grieve. By and by the harvest, He will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. If you know it, sing it with me. Bringing in the sheaves. Second line's just like it. Bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Oh, that's a good old scriptural song. Right out of Psalm 126. He that goeth forth and weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Well, tonight, uh, I know this is kind of an unusual message. It's a passage we don't hear a lot about. You don't preach a lot about it. And yet, Jesus faced the issue squarely. Life is uncertain. Now, death is real. And as death finds you, eternity claims you. Death happens. Because life is uncertain and death happens, repentance is essential. And these three things then speak to us as God's people in a special way because it reminds us of the importance of sowing the seed. Sowing the seed. Sowing the seed. Let's stand together, please.